Hello, and welcome to The Future is Sound, a partnership in hearing podcast brought to you by Oticon Canada. I'm your host, Becca Angel, and thanks for joining me on my first podcast journey where we will chat broadly about all things hearing. We will launch fun new episodes every month, and if you have any suggestions or comments, be sure to get in touch. Okay, let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, Our guest today is Dave Gordy, a familiar name probably to lots of you. He has been a pediatric audiologist for 27 years. I'm dating you, Dave. (laughs) Yes, you are. He's uh, previously worked in a pediatric clinic and hospital in Victoria and North Vancouver in British Columbia. And Dave is also the director of pediatric audiology and research for Oticon in Copenhagen, Denmark, and is also the past president of the Canadian Academy of Audiology. Uh, Dave has also taught at York University and the British uh, University of British Columbia. And Dave's current research projects include pediatric hearing aids, bone conduction devices, and children, uh, unilateral hearing loss, the social and emotional development of children with hearing loss, and knowledge translation and implementation science in pediatric audiology. Uh, So big warm welcome to you, Dave. Thanks so much for being here and being a guest on the new podcast. Thank you, Becca. My pleasure to be here. That was a lot to unpack. You have many years of experience in this industry, and I feel like you continue to add more accolades to your name. (laughs) It's been, I'm surprised I'm still in the field, to be honest. I think I, as a new grad, I thought, oh, I'll probably be an audiologist for five years before doing something different. And I don't know where the time goes, but I think it's still a really great and interesting profession to be a part of. It's great. I was wondering, I know that when I was started with Oticon almost four and a half years ago now, you were maybe just jumping into your PhD or it might've been a couple of years ago. So can you tell us a little bit more about your PhD research and what that was all about? Yeah. So, you know, my, when I was working as a clinical audiologist, I used to be troubled by some of the kids that I saw that uh, wore hearing aids, uh, children that were deaf or hard of hearing. And I was always very puzzled by why some of the kids had these really great social lives and groups of friends, and others seemed to be struggling on that front. And both were wearing well-fit hearing technology. And, you know, many of my colleagues, when I would raise this, they would say, well, do you think it might be related to their personality? And so for me, I never quite bought that. It seemed like something was happening with these kids as they were growing, that they were being coached or equipped in some way to be better prepared at developing relationships and friendships. And so after working at Oticon for a while, I had a discussion by chance with uh, Dr. Sheila Moody from Western University. We were both uh, attending a conference and we, she was asking me some questions about uh, clinical work and I brought this up to her and she said, you know, that sounds like a really great topic for a research study. And, you know, that's something you could build a PhD on. So that's when I decided to go back to school 
as a spry 40-year-old and, um, <laughs> and uh, with my research question looking at uh, the relationships of children who are deaf and hard of hearing and what are the facilitators to those kids uh, having the ability to really develop them well. Um, and, you know, so it was a really interesting study where we looked at uh, specifically classroom relationships and engaged stakeholders like parents, teachers, and students themselves to ask them, you know, what is it that you think are the key elements for children who are deaf or hard of hearing to, to be able to feel included and, and have these relationships? Do you find that the things you discovered in that study are sort of fueling more of your studies today? Yeah, I think one of the things that I've noticed is that today, a really hot topic is inclusion and engagement of children who are deaf and hard of hearing. And, and I think the reason for that is that most kids today who are wearing hearing technology are attending their neighborhood classroom, their neighborhood schools. And so they're being educated alongside their peers that have typical or normal hearing. And so because of that, there is this interest of what is it that is needed for children to feel that they are engaged in their classrooms? Um, are there barriers to communication access? What is it that they need to have to feel included? And, and so I would say, having that foundation of understanding the key elements required to build relationships in the classroom and identifying other things needed for engagement in the classroom has really just set up a number of different projects that are available to look at. Yeah. Where can we find most of these studies yeah, so the, uh, my PhD work is actually av is available through York University. It, the full 144 pages thesis <laughs> is, is, is available there for light reading with your glass of wine or beer on Friday yeah. night. Um, <laughs> maybe multiple Friday nights. Or maybe multiples, yes. <laughs> and then I'm in the process right now of splitting it up into a couple of uh, smaller publications. And that's taken me a little bit longer than I had hoped, but um, I'm in the home stretch. They're both about 80% written and, um, and, and they're going to make their way into some peer reviewed journals, hopefully um, this spring. Nice. I'm sure we're all gonna look forward to that. You'll have to let me know when that's available to Definitely. pass on. Um, one thing that I think is interesting, I mean, I did a, a thesis at UBC and there's so much preparation and work, you know, as you know, that goes into some of these studies. But for people that aren't as familiar with that process, can you kind of run us through briefly like a start to finish on a peer reviewed paper, some of the steps maybe that a lot of people wouldn't be aware of? Yeah, so I think um, there's there's the two different components. There's the research study itself, and then there's the publication. And so I would say one of the biggest challenges with the research study is really rec the recruitment of your participants. And so if you think I'm one person and there are probably thousands of other researchers out there who are also looking for participants, not even just in audiology, but other disciplines um, that include children, 
many of these institutions where we might find participants like schools, for example, are being bombarded with requests for research participants. And so with that being said, the, you know, the, the interest by many institutions to um, help out is, is somewhat restricted because they have their own jobs to do in terms of teaching students, for example, in the schools. And so recruitment is, is definitely a, a big problem. But, um, you know, I guess it depends on the type of research question and how interesting it is to those that are working in the field. Because I know when I was doing my PhD research, there was a lot of interest. And so a lot of my colleagues who are working in the schools said, I will do what uh, I need to do to help you get those participants because we really need to know more about this. Um, right. You know, in terms of the development of a research study, there's first the research proposal where re you're reviewing the current literature. So what has been covered previously in this general area? And then where does your study fit in? And so creating that proposal is, is, uh, is very key. And, and then that is also very important when it is reviewed by um, ethics committees. So to say that, yes, you may proceed, your study is not going to pose any harm to your participants. You may go ahead and engage them in, and uh, do your study. Once you have all of this data gathered and you're writing up your study for a publication, it's really then identifying a couple of, uh, or making a couple of key decisions. One is, where do you want this information to be accessible? So I typically ask myself, who is the audience that I feel might most be interested or benefit from the study? And then what journal does that typically speak to or uh, those group of professionals? So for example, the study that I just described for my PhD about classroom relationships, it's probably not so well suited to ear and hearing, for example, mm -hmm. but for maybe hearing speech in the schools, uh, the ASHA journal, because you're going to get a lot of um, professionals who are working in the schools. So I think finding the journal that is a really nice fit for your publication, you know, is, is something that you do. And then the other thing to consider is, what is called the impact factor of the journal. And that impact factor of that journal is really going to give you a good idea of um, how rigorous their research uh, process is in terms of reviewing articles and um, the quality of the work and, and so forth. And so there actually is a place where you can type in impact factor of audiology journals. If you just actually use Google and it will give you a ranking of the, oh, really? of I didn't the top, know that. Yeah, of the top yeah. audiology journals. And so wow. um, that being said is that you may not, you know, for example, ear and hearing is always close to the top, if not mm -hmm. always at the top. And so that means getting an accepted publication in that journal is probably very competitive versus let's say the Journal of American Academy of Audiology, let's say it ranks number eight. That means that that competitiveness is still there, but there may be the, that opportunity to submit something there. So right. it's kind of, I, I would say first and foremost, the most important thing is finding a, a place for your journal to be published where it's going to reach the intended audience. And then the impact factor is kind of slightly important, but not so much. You, there are just many, many journals that you've never heard of before 
like the International Journal of Otolaryngology, Rhinology, and Audiology, which is published in a, you know, in a very small office in New York City. And, you know, they are, are reaching a different type of audience, probably more international. So mm-hmm. it's less important, but there are options to choose from. Yeah, right. Obviously, finishing something that you've done all this preparation for and all this recruitment for, and then writing it and then having it published in in a journal, that finale is obviously very rewarding. But I was just wondering if there's, you know, another part of the process that you really enjoy about, you know, being a researcher and you know, I think the data collection part for me is always the most fun because you're directly observing in many cases the responses to, you know, this these tests that you've set up and you're getting to firsthand to start to see the data come together. And, mm-hmm. and, and I guess the thing that's most rewarding for me is I'm always surprised when things come up that I had never even thought of. And so that's always really interesting because when you set out to do a study, there are elements that are somewhat predictable and that you're thinking, well, these are the results that I expect to see. But I think the beauty is to see those unexpected pieces. Mm -hmm. And I think in the rest of the research process, I would say more, uh, more of the challenging part is when you submit things for peer review, it means that your peers are going to critique your work And, you know, even the most seasoned researchers get their manuscript back with pages and pages of comments (laughs) where Mm -hmm. people are posing questions to you. Well, why didn't you do this? Had you ever thought about doing this? You know, your your methodology here may be flawed. Did you ever consider this? And you (laughs) you really are like, my baby, how dare you talk about my baby that way? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so you really, you come to learn very quickly that this is about this peer-reviewed committee wanting to elevate your work and your writing to the next level. And I would say that that's, I was prepared for that. I had a colleague in Edmonton who said to me, just be prepared. Your very first manuscript you submit, you know, get a box of Kleenex handy, maybe a (laughs) stiff drink, because you're not going to like what they say. Mm -hmm. But just realize it's for the growth potential for your article. And I see that now when I look at finished products of where the manuscript was that I submitted, and then after peer review and questions and suggestions, it's just so much more polished. But it's still that back and forth as you negotiate your final article it's a necessary evil (laughs) it's a necessary evil yeah yeah I was going to say when you talk about recruitment when I was deciding whether to do a thesis or write the exam at UBC and when I was given a couple of options for ideas in the brain lab there it was like I always wanted to do something with with kids but the recruitment process for children is so much harder and time consuming. And the ethics for that is so different to collecting adult data. And then there's an option of doing normative data versus abnormal data. And again, collecting normative data is, is a lot easier t- to get. So I sort of copped out on the easy route for that one and did adult norms. But even getting participants for that was 
was challenging. You know, I, I might've had 30 or maybe 40, I might've had 50, but then, you know, there was 20 electrophys recordings that we just had to throw out. So even if you get a lot of participants, some of that data, you don't even get to keep because it's just not, didn't work or, or whatever. So in terms of your work with Oticon research and pediatrics, can you talk a little bit about the challenges there with getting children participants for some of these studies that we like to do at Oticon? Yeah, so, you know, it is, pediatric research is the main focus of my work. And so it is challenging when we think about kids. And I know frequently I am asked questions when we release studies why don't we see more research with babies or preschool age kids? I'd really like to see that. And, you know, my answer to that is, so would I. Can you go ahead and create some outcome measures <laughs> yeah. that might allow us to gather performance data on these little ones? And so, sorry, I'm being a little silly, but that's mm -hmm. the main limitation is, is that we use school age kids because we have these tests that allow us to measure performance with our hearing aids and our, or our collaborators allow them to measure performance. And with babies, we are really limited on tools such as parent observation. And so when we start using observational tools, then we're, we're getting into a realm of subjective perceptions and, uh, and, and that again challenges the integrity of the research study. So typically our, our pathway with research with kids has been, let's use school age kids who can perform a wide variety of test measures that are really solid and give us a lot of different perspectives on the functioning of our hearing aids. And then that will allow us to translate or postulate how this might apply to babies. Right. Yeah, it's, it's something that hopefully we'll, you know, eventually be able to get a little bit easier in, in the future, but. Well, and I think, you know, there are tools being developed right now where we see, you know, speech ABR, where they're using this, these, uh, Krista Neuer from Colorado is doing these measures where she's looking at objective ways to predict speech recognition scores in children who are deaf or hard of hearing. And so when those tools are perfected, that really would change, you know, the types of populations we could work with. And then, as you mentioned, ethics review boards do get a little nervous when we start talking about developing brains, developing speech and language systems, you know, everything that preschool age kids are. So whether or not that changes or not, I'm not too sure. Mm -hmm. Just on another topic, I was wondering, like, in your opinion, we don't really get to see that many side-by-side -side hearing aid manufacturer comparisons. Can you say anything on that topic? Yeah. You know, in my opinion, it's always tricky. If we were, I would always want to think about a fair comparison. And so with staggered product launches from manufacturers, you know, if I say, well, the Oticon Open Play is our current hearing aid that we just released. Why don't we go ahead and compare it to the other manufacturer? Oh, but wait, their hearing aid is now six months old. 
but they have a new one coming out in three months. So, you know, it's, it's about balancing those release times. When is it fair to actually do those comparisons? And I think the other thing that's really challenging is um, which features are you wanting to compare? Probably the easiest thing to compare is simply performance data through questionnaires. And so if you were to have kids comment on individual opinions of which technology they uh, prefer in different types of environments, that could probably be a fair comparison. But again, we know that the individual experiences of kids who are deaf and hard of hearing is quite variable. So for us to group together a bunch of kids and try and control for that variability, it's really challenging. It doesn't mean that we can't do it or that we, we, we won't do it. It just means that we have to interpret the data very carefully. And we know that there will be people looking at that data that will say, hey, wait a minute. And they're going to start acknowledging all the limitations that we will know exist mm -hmm. going in. So you're talking about an effort to develop a research study knowing there's a pile of limitations. Lots of holes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and acclimatization too, like anyone that's been wearing a hearing open play already for a year and then is going to try something else. There's there's just so many variables there. Yeah, the acclimatization is an interesting one because there isn't really any research that talks about how much time does it take for a child to adapt to a, a different hearing aid signal processing strategy. And there are some that would say, you know, they don't need time. And there's others that say, but, but I noticed that the kids, when I change them over and I fit them, those that are working clinically, they say, but I do notice it takes them a while to adjust. And so that's another gray area, as you, as you just highlighted, is, is, is acclimatization a factor that should be considered? And there isn't anything to reflect on other than some studies where some researchers have said, we just fit them and then we do the measures and acclimatization doesn't seem to be an issue. So it's a balance and I guess it depends really what the focus of the research is and, and the role of acclimatization. Yeah. Just to kind of conclude our, our quick session, I was wondering if you could let perhaps give our listeners a little sneak peek on some research coming for Oticon, of course, without giving too much away. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I love about Oticon is that we are so focused on the lives of children and adults that have hearing differences, hearing loss. And we're always looking at, you know, conceptual studies with our features, but then we're also looking at more holistically or the impact functionally of how our hearing technology really helps children and adults. And so that being said is that I can tell you, I'm really interested in further evaluating the impact of hearing loss on children and in their daily lives. So what does it mean for kids to go to a birthday party? What does it mean for, for children to go to the movie theater how important is it for 
kids to hear a whisper? Can they hear a whisper? So these are, without giving too much away, mm -hmm. studies are in development and will launch this spring that are further evaluating the experiences of uh, children who are deaf and hard of hearing in their day-to-day -day listening environments and what do we need to do or how does our hearing technology support their engagement, their participation and their inclusion. And I think that's a really needed pathway research-wise and, and I'm excited to follow that. Cool. Well, I look forward to it. I'm sure everyone's looking forward to it. And thank you again for being here. If we have any links or research papers, we can paste them below and people can check them out. So just shoot me an email with anything you'd like us to include. Thank you, Becca. You're welcome. Hopefully we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, or leave us a review. You can also register for our Partnership in Hearing community website using the link in the description below. Thank you.